Those young people today, if they would just get a job, when I was that age, all these kids just get their participation trophies, those millennials, those Generation Z, kids today. Now, if you're wanting a lesson in how to push away young people that you come into contact with, use any of those phrases, and you'll do a really good job of pushing them away. However, if you genuinely love, care, and want to help shape the next generation and support them, then lead in. Because maybe there's a way we could do that and not use those kind of words. And lest you and I forget this, um, the kids today, however you define kids, some of you call me kids still, I get that. I'm younger than some of your kids, that's fine. But however you define kids today, um, just remember they are a product and byproduct of a generation or two above them. So they are our byproducts. Yours and mine. So if it's the kids today's problem, it's your fault. Bad news for all of us, right? That's how that works. They're a byproduct of you and I, but what might happen if we leaned in and we started thinking differently? And so we've been talking about, we talked last week, and we're talking this week, and we'll talk again for a few more weeks about this idea that what's it look like for us to kind of grow young? And we're using that phrase not in a like, we want to, to be young, because right, you just get older. That's how that works. Um, but what if we had influence for generations above and below us? What if we began to recognize that there are ways are to speak, where we can speak into each generation, that we can love and care for people? What might happen if our influence and our imagination and our relationships went from generation to generation? In fact, what if, it's why the series is titled, Making Space. What if you and I actually made space for people? What if we made space for conversation? What if we did that? In fact, I would say it this way. We want to be the kind of church where we literally and metaphorically make space for others. What do I mean by that? I mean, literally, that we might invite people in, that we might create space next to us where they can sit. We might invite them to lunch. We would even become the kind of people and the kind of place that would be comfortable and safe for people to wrestle with their doubts and their fears and their questions, and that we would become that kind of people. So, in a world that is quick to be polarized, we want to make space for difficult conversations. And so today, in week two of this series, Making Space, we're talking about empathy. And empathy is just to understand um, or feel what someone else is going through. Empathy is a pretty important thing. And so you might go, why are we talking about empathy? We're talking about making space. Because there's a, a significant gap that exists today from when you and I may have grown up, or if you're growing up right now, right? It's, the world is a little bit different. It changes every generation. Always has. Some things are constant, but other things have changed. Or at least the way in which they exist 
has changed. And so I would say it this week, that it's tougher to be a young person today than it was 20 years ago. And probably, maybe, I don't know if it's tougher than 40 years ago, but the, the world is definitely different than even when I was growing up, and I'm not that old, contrary to what some of you younger people think. I was really disheartened a few weeks ago when we played kickball as a church, and the guys' team was lined up. You know, we had several of the guys were cheering in the stands, but we were lined up from oldest, from youngest to oldest. And about midway through, I realized I'm the oldest guy in this group. This is not a good thing. So, uh, just this week, I was on Olivet Nazarene University's campus for a board of trustees meeting, and. It also happened to be the homecoming, and so there's this kind of thing that happens. I heard really great stories about what's happening among students and on the campus, and then um, I was thinking about how I got roped into serving pancakes to a thousand college students. By the way, I was sweating when I was done. I mean, that was work, and they just kept coming. We kept looking up, and the line kept getting longer. Um, but but I will tell you this: they were thankful, and they were grateful. And they had smiles on their face, and they said, please and thank you. And it was just fun to watch. And then we didn't get a lot of time to talk because they're trying to get a 1,000 kids through a line. But, but they would ask questions, and we would kind of crack jokes. And then um, I, I sat and listened to some stories about other students on campus. And I listened to how some students are, are leading a program called Best Buddies that partners with um, the, the mentally disabled in the community, and they, they literally function as best buddies, and they take them out and they hang out, and I listened to how one young woman is leading the charge for homeless ministry in the Chicago area. I mean, I listened to some really cool stories. But I can't forget, I was sitting in a dinner on Thursday night, I can't forget what I heard then as well. This one was sobering. This was a reality that kind of messed with me. In fact, I would say it this way. The, the university's increase in mental health counseling over the last 10 years has increased by 100%. 100%. One in five of the students on campus, there's about 3,000 undergraduate students, traditional undergrad students, one in five of them are in counseling. And before you go, well, they probably just come from tough home lives, and they're not involved in extracurricular stuff. That's just not true. In fact, seven out of ten of them are engaged in lo their local church, whether it's on campus near there or whether it's like where they grew up. Um, almost all of them come from relatively healthy families, whatever you want to define health as. Most of them, seven out of ten, were involved in extracurricular activities, but they are struggling in life. So there aren't really simple answers how we solve this. And so I was um, actually quoting the university president, uh, Greg Chenoweth, and here was his quote. Researchers think technology is to blame. Social media undermines a viewer's dignity through constant comparison and ruthless competition for attention. It also proves click-button speedy for administrative tasks. But... When internal trouble brews, resilience is the precondition for well-being, and this generation never cultivated it like prior ones. Further, brain science shows a depressed person does not learn as well or deeply. Nearly 7 in 10 students in counseling say their grades suffer. So we can help foster resilience through empathy. You and I can do that. 
And so just think about the stress that social media puts on students for just two minutes. Um, The dumb stuff they say is never gone, by the way. It's always out there. You cannot take it back. Young people in this room are like, yes, I know. It doesn't matter if you say it at 12 or 13. It's still there. A screenshot of something you send someone can wreck your life. The mental struggle with going, why does this person have more likes than I do? In fact, we literally take photos of ourselves in ways in which we go, affirm me, I matter. We call them selfies. And due to Instagram in particular, the body images that students are having today is greater than any time in human history. Now, some of you are going, well, then parents shouldn't let their kids on social media. Don't go there yet. That's a level of judging we're going to talk about in a few minutes. That's why I say, hang on, don't. You can think it for a second, just don't go there yet. But what is the church to do? See, the truth is, we believe there's a message of hope in the midst of the world today. There's a place and a people and a message and even a person that can speak into their lives in the midst of all these things that might offer hope. And so we think, how do we get to that place? Well, one, we model empathy. We listen. We listen. And so what I'm going to say next is hard for many of us, and I might even throw myself in this category. Here's these words, and they're going to even be on the screen because they matter. We don't judge, we journey with. We don't judge, we journey with. I'm going to let that sit for a second because some of you know are freaking out. Just bear with me. We don't judge, we journey with. Now, I literally have, I'm quoting a question from this book that we're going to read a couple excerpts from here in a few minutes. And this is the question, because now, because here's where some of you are going, right? Uh, I'm all for empathy, but what do I do when young people I know make choices that are clearly unwise? Does being supportive mean I have to stay silent? Great question, right? Now, these words are also going to be on the screen, because I think they matter. First, connect, then correct. Too many times people try to say, well, these young people today, and they try to tell them what to do, and they don't even know them. If you don't have a relation with them, yes, shut up. It's pretty simple. We don't need your social media rants. They're not helpful for anyone. And so I was thinking, well, how do we, how do, we do that? What are some things we can do? And so there's a great list that I, I, it's not my list. I wish it was my list, but what do you do when you're trying to, to first connect and then correct? I love these list of questions. So here they are. Pay attention to how you are feeling before you talk with them. Are you nervous or scared? Do this young person's choices surface old memories or wounds in your own life? Right? It might be more about you than it is about them. Start your conversation by affirming what you appreciate about them. Gently probe how they are feeling about the particular issue that concerns you instead of diving into a lecture or tirade. Ask if they can think of any other ways they could respond to that issue. Help them explore the pros and cons of those potential responses. Share your concerns, and then ask what they think is wrong about any observations you share, as well as what may be right. Ask how you can help them make any shifts they desire to make. 
Shower them with the same response whether they don't want to change or try to change and fail or try to change and succeed. Unconditional love. Even, or maybe especially when they disappoint you. Please don't be one more adult who makes them feel abandoned. Pray for them and with them. Empathize with them. Right, so here's one of the realities. Today, um, 25 is the new 15, and 15 is the new 25. If you haven't figured that out, here's what I mean. People are getting married five years later than they used to, but puberty is happening five years earlier than it used to. College prep is starting in eighth grade, which is insane, by the way. Their entire lives are scheduled from morning until night, almost every single day. They don't have time to figure out what in the world they're doing, let alone who in the world they are. And studies are showing that 13 to 17-year-olds experience extreme stress at greater levels than adults. This is a call for us to empathize with young people today. I love this quote by Kara Powell. When teenagers and emerging adults are appreciated, understood, and valued, they become conduits through which empathy flows. So in other words, if you empathize with them, they become empathetic to the world around them. And can you imagine how much better our world may look if more people were empathetic? A lot better? I mean, heck, a little better would be awesome. But young people are trying to answer three questions in particular. And as you hear these questions, you go, oh, okay. But they're also the same questions that you and I honestly probably wrestle with. And here are these three questions. Who am I? Where do I fit? What difference do I make? I'll leave those on the screen for a couple minutes because I want to talk about each of them. So where do, who am I? In other words, what's my identity? It's about me, right? Who, who, who am I? What about me? In fact, the second question, where do I fit? It's about belonging. Who am I a part of? It's about us. And third question, what difference do I make? It's about our purpose. What What's my purpose in life? It's about our entire world. Where do I fit in this whole thing? And so I think we all struggle with these things at one level. But the difference is, for whatever reason, when you're under 30, they seem to be a much greater struggle than when you're over 30. And so here's why. There's this quote from the book Growing Young. After age 30, we periodically feel the tension of resolving these three ultimate questions. But young people feel that pressure acutely and constantly. Those over 30 sense these big questions as a back burner presence with intervals when the heat is turned up. For people under 30, the relational and self-image struggles keep their identity, belonging, and purpose dilemmas at a constant churning boil. So this week, I... Um, was thinking, like, I, I know several young people like, that are much younger than me, and so I sent a message to many of them, and here was the question I asked them. I asked this one simple question. I didn't want to like, give them any background because I wanted to just get their answer without them knowing where I was coming from. Um, I was thinking about this message, but I asked them this question. What are the things you struggle with the most? And they're between the ages of 16 and 25. And so um, these are people I actually know, like I know their names and their faces and most of their stories. And so here was the response, a list I got. I mean, this is the list. And so I'm just going to read it to you because I just thought it was important to share this. These are, some of them are connected to our church. Some of them aren't, but here's what I heard again and again. 
And they didn't know about these three questions, about identity and purpose and belonging. They didn't know I was asking these things or that they, there was a book written that tells that they're wrestling with who am I and how do I fit in this world and what am I called to do? And so here were their answers. I feel like I struggle with balancing my homework slash school with my social life. I also feel like stress and decision-making is also something that is hard for me right now. Probably for all of us. Lust. It's way too easy with social media to fall into this temptation. When I'm active on these platforms, I'm a whole lot more tempted in this area. It's a constant struggle. But hormones are slowly starting to chill out. Discipline. Life is constantly changing. So many things are going on in the world and in my personal life. I lack consistency in my everyday life. I would love to have daily habits to get me started in the morning. But this is a lot harder said than executed. Finding purpose in Christ. I think this is the root of all problems. Where I come up short in my identity in Christ, I try to fill those holes with worldly things. For example... When I'm in the Word consistently and know my purpose in Christ, I'm less likely to stray from the path. The distractions that steal my purpose in Christ are wanting attention and approval from others. I'm in a time of my life where it feels like I have to prove myself. I'm looking for jobs and hoping to to succeed in work, so I'm constantly looking to look better in the eyes of others. The drive to be better isn't all that bad, but the intentions for doing so are in the wrong place. Again, they're answering the question, what are the things you struggle with the most? The next one, balancing religion and wanting to fit in. Next one, mostly balancing everything in my life and making sure I keep my priorities straight. The societal pressure on us as teenagers that we need, this is all caps by the way, need is all caps, to know what we want to do after high school. All the pressure adds so much extra stress to making sure you're making the right decisions for your life, and it becomes overwhelming, stressful. And if you don't like the decisions you've made, it can be depressing. Also, the fact that becoming an adult in this new world after high school is an enormous transition that I don't think we are prepared enough for as teenagers. So the new things we experience as young adults, I find myself questioning and judging every move I make to question myself if it's acceptable to society, and worry too much about what others think. My biggest struggle is my tendency to shame myself for not gaining enough knowledge daily, particularly when it comes to my main passion. Next one is simple, is a one-word answer. Acceptance. The next one, not being able to save enough money for emergencies and or the future. Not having enough time to do what I need to do between work and school to help others and get all the things done I need to do for myself. Not taking care of myself physically in terms of eating right and exercising, even though I know it will make me healthier overall. Hustle culture is the worst, and it's why so many people my age are burnt out all the time. And the last one, lust and clarity over identity, who I want to be in the future. Now, they didn't know I was going to be using this book today. They didn't know that I was going to be talking about answering these three questions, right? Who am I? Where do I fit? And what difference do I make? And yet, their responses fit those three questions. And so I say all to say, I don't think that's a new thing. 
I think it's different today. I think social media is a radically new world. I think it, it, it adds a level of stress and difficulty that you and I didn't experience as teenagers. Actually, some of you are experiencing right now. So I should say the older people in this room, people my age and older, didn't experience that. Right? Social media was invented when I was in college. But for some of these kids, it's all they've ever known. But I think we see stories when people empathize with others and they walk alongside and they journey with all throughout the scriptures. Right? There's a story of Elijah and Elisha. Where Elisha goes, oh, Elijah, I don't know what's coming. And Elijah goes, hey, you're going to be the guy. You're going to do this. And Elijah is scared to death. And he's like, well, can I have what you have? And, and Elijah goes, sure, let's pray about it. Or there's Eli and Samuel where Eli is the old priest and Samuel's the young guy. And, and they're sleeping. And, and Samuel gets up and he goes to Eli and he goes, hey, uh, you called for me? And he's like, I'm sleeping, man. Leave me alone. And he goes back to bed and he gets up and he hears again a second time. He goes back into Eli and Eli goes, I'm sleeping. It, it, Go back to sleep. I didn't say anything. And the third time it dawns in Eli's mind. He's like, oh, God's trying to speak to you. And he goes, hey, Samuel, next time, just say, here I am. I'm listening. Jesus journeyed with his disciples. You can read the, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And you can see all kinds of times when Jesus was, just, Jesus was just there for them. He took their questions and their wrestling and their doubts. He pushed them to be better. He did it. He empathized with people like the woman at the well or the woman caught in adultery, and he told them to, to leave her alone. I mean, like, the stories are all throughout the scriptures, but I kept coming back to the story of Paul and Timothy. Paul was Timothy's mentor, and, and Paul was a leader in the church, and Paul was the one who wrote much of the New Testament, the, the letters of the New Testament. And so Paul writes this letter to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Here's part of what Paul writes. He says, don't let anyone look down on you because you are young. But set an example for the believers in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to preaching, and to teaching. Do not neglect your gift which was given you through prophecy when the body of elders laid their hands on you. Be diligent in these matters. Give yourself wholly to them so that everyone may see your progress. Now, you might look at this and go, oh, those are nice words, but, but let's give a little context to this. Timothy would have been young in a culture that valued age over competency. And Paul's recognizing Timothy as these spiritual gifts, like, right, he has spiritual maturity beyond his age. And so Paul recognizes it's pretty tough to try to lead people that are older than you. I empathize with Timothy. But one of the things that happens in the midst of this is Paul is also saying this from, from personal experience. Paul was a leader uh, in the Jewish church of its day. Paul would have been a leader when he was young because Paul would not have been able to move up in the church as quickly as he did if he wasn't kind of, I don't know how to say this well, he was like gifted, he was, he was thought very highly of, he moved up at a young age into leadership in the church of his day. And so he does understand what Timothy is going through. And so he doesn't just say, Timothy, hey, good luck, hope it goes well for you. He's saying like, I'm with you. Like, I'm in this with you. You're not alone. In fact, I'm coming to you. But until that day comes, um, know that you're not by yourself. 
Know that there's someone in your corner. There's someone who's got your back. Know that there's someone who is near you that wants to be there for you. But Paul gives a very particular message to Timothy, and I think it's one that matters as much today at any time in history. Here's what Paul says to Timothy throughout this section of this letter. Hey, Timothy, make sure you have really good theology. Make sure you believe the right things, right? I, I, I as a pastor who... Um, it's kind of undergraduate school and then graduate school and theology. I, I wrestle with so much bad theology I hear all the time. It drives me out of my mind. Um, bad understandings of the scriptures. Um, right, like you can print stuff that's not good. <laughs> um, but Paul knows how important it is that we are shaped by what we understand. And so Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, no pressure on you, man, but, but make sure what you're teaching is really good. But don't forget, you're capable. You can do this. You're not alone. Paul empathized with Timothy. So the question for you and I, what message should you and I give to the Timothys that we encounter? How do we mentor the next generation? How do we build relationships across generations? How do we make sure that that people who are struggling with their identity, wondering who they are or where they fit what the purpose is? How do we help them in the world in which we live? So I have some practical examples that I think might be helpful. Uh, one, uh, get to know one young person well, at least per week or month, and not just someone in your family, right? Reach out across people because you're like, well, I have a grandkid. Good. Love them well, but also get to know somebody else. In fact, I'd say to add to that, um, just this coming week, right, if you're not scheduled on Wednesday night um, to work, then I hope to see you here passing out candy, um, at a minimum donating candy, right? But, but invite some young person in your life to come pass out candy with you, get to know them, or invite them to sit with you at church on a Sunday. Um, one of the cool things happening in the life of our church right now, right, we have these prayer partners, and so um, Eileen, Paul, and, and Pastor Holly have been putting together people back and forth, so Older people are praying with younger people. And here's the cool part. The younger people are also praying with the older people. That's a good thing. If you're not signed up for that, see one of them. They can help you. Um, if you just want to wonder what it's like to be a young mom today, and you're like, oh, so glad I'm not doing it today. Well, come, come watch and help with the play and learn that happens here regularly. Or um, be a part of just young moms groups. Uh, hear their stories. Volunteer. Be a mentor with Step Up that you'll hear more about later even. But... Um, there's going to be a mops group starting here. They're always going to be looking for mentor moms if you think you're in that group, right? You can walk alongside with people and go, hey, um, you'll get through this. You will survive. I promise. Eventually, they will quit pooping their pants. It will be okay, right? Like, that all will happen at some point. But here's one of the most important things we can ever do. We help connect people to the life of the church. And here's why. I want to read this quote from Growing Young. It says this. Although the typical young person is steeped in stress, there is some good news for churches. Thankfully, the hazards caused by stress seem less troublesome for churches and parishes that grow young. Over 80% of the young people in the congregations we surveyed agree that their church involvement decreases their stress. Even though church activities, and leadership often make young people busier, there's a significant upside. 
Congregational involvement seems to lessen anxiety by reminding young people of what's important and inviting them to step away from their chaos of their lives to refocus on loving God and loving others. If you're going to mentor someone, it might be helpful, especially if they are a follower of Jesus, to remind them of these words also of Paul. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. Help them remember that you are no longer who you were, but who you are. And God desires to make you a new creation. You don't have to be defined by your past. That God loves you in ways that are beyond our imagination, beyond the ways that even make sense to us. And we can remind young people in their greatest struggles, and maybe you need to hear this today as well, because I know I often need to as well, that when life is difficult or hard or uncertain, that these words of Jesus may be for us an oasis in the desert. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. One of the things we so often get wrong about what it means to follow Jesus is we, it's like, all right, God, got this, and I'm going to do this myself. And we forget that we're invited into relationship with him and one another. If we're walking through life trying to do it by ourselves, we're doing it wrong. But here's what happens. If we're not a safe space as a community of faith, if we're not a safe space, if we don't empathize with today's young people, if we don't really listen, then the story I'm going to read about this guy named Steve will be the story that defines us, and it's not a story I'd want to define our church. And here is the story. Pastor, if I raise my finger, will God know which one I'm going to raise even before I raise it? 13-year-old Steve attended church every week with his parents. This particular Sunday, he had stayed after the worship service to ask his pastor this pressing question. The pastor replied, yes, God knows everything. Haunted by the plight of African children suffering from dire famine Steve then pulled out a Life magazine cover depicting two children tormented by starvation. He asked the logical follow-up, Well, does God know about this and what's going to happen to those kids? The pastor gave a similar response. Steve, I know you don't understand this, but yes, God knows about that. If you were Steve, would you be satisfied with the pastor's answer to your question? Steve wasn't. He walked out of his congregation that day and never again worshipped at a Christian church. The good, even remarkable news is that Steve was drawn like a magnet to the faith community and his pastor specifically for answers to the dilemmas that most troubled him. The bad, even tragic news is that his pastor's short-sighted response repelled him from the faith community permanently. Even more disheartening is that the pastor failed to grasp the question behind Steve's question. 
Similar to the young people in your congregation, Steve wasn't merely asking an existential question about the nature of suffering. Likely behind Steve's rather esoteric inquiry about children in Africa were more personal questions about life and faith. Perhaps Steve wondered why God would allow the suffering he himself had experienced in his 13 years, which included bullying at school, financial struggles at home, and most painfully, being relinquished for adoption by his birth parents. As Steve was trying to make sense of the pain in our world, he wanted his pastor to understand and help him make sense of his own pain. Maybe you've heard of Steve. His last name is Jobs. Steve Jobs, founder and CEO of Apple Inc., was a church-going teenager who wrestled with big questions. He sought out his church to help him pin down answers, but his congregation failed to understand what he was really asking. Imagine if Steve had been greeted by a different answer from his pastor, one that was an on-ramp to a deeper discussion about faith rather than a conversational dead end, one that acknowledged Steve's curiosity about suffering in Africa as well as Steve's deeper questions about life goals, divine love, and his own place in the world. Imagine if the pastor had replied to 13-year-old Steve, that's a great question. How about if you and I and your dad meet for breakfast this week and talk about it? Or imagine if Steve's parents had been attentive enough to initiate a discussion with Steve themselves. Or that any adult had hit the conversational ball over the net to Steve instead of letting it slowly dribble off the court. Imagine if Steve Jobs had his questions taken seriously by his faith community and had later poured his entrepreneurial brilliance not only into furthering high-tech interfaces, but also into furthering the gospel and mobilizing others to respond to needs globally. Our world would be different today. Unfortunately, no adult answered Steve's questions convincingly. No adult peered under the hood of his words to understand the inner cries that sparked his deep dilemmas. As a result, Steve, like so many young people today, walked away from both faith and the faith community. I can't tell you the number of times that we try to give trite answers to deep questions and how pathetic we sound to the next generation. It's back to my early alliance, why good theology matters. I would argue that pastor was a poor theologian. That's why the answers we give to kids are so important. That's why consistency in our faith matters. It's why at the end of the day, we believe that somehow, in ways that really are inexplicable, that we come to know Jesus, it answers some of the questions that don't make a lot of sense, but we also believe in a God who redeems and restores and is going to make all things right. We believe that someday God is going to restore every broken thing in this world, including the world itself. And so in that belief, right, that's what John the Revelator writes about. There'll be a new heaven and a new earth. God is going to redeem and restore all that is broken. In the beginning, God created and said, it's good. And he will make it all good again. But in the middle of that, 
between then and now, what are we left to do? We help people answer these three questions. Who am I? Let me tell you today what we've come to believe. That you are invited to be a child of God. There is no greater identity that you can hold than that, that I believe that when I'm at my healthiest, the thing that I hold most dearly, most truly, is that I'm God's beloved son. And I come to know the depth of a father's love who says, hey, do you want to know how far love will go for you? That not even death itself can contain the love I have for you. There is no place you can go, no thing you can do, where the love of God does not transcend and enter into that space and time in human history. But the crazy thing about the way God loves, and this is probably what I would have talked to Steve about, is that God loves us enough to let us go where we want to go. And the problem for us is sometimes we choose to go to places that are so broken, and we create systems that are broken all around us. But because of God's love, he limits himself in such a way that you and I still get to choose. He doesn't coerce us or force us to choose to love him or enter into relationship to him. But he invites us in. Where do I fit? Right, and that's, a, by the way, a much longer conversation. That's why I started November 14th. Uh, if you want to come have those kind of conversations, I'll be here with coffee uh, at 9 a.m. Because I, I don't want there to be another Steve in this local church. Where do I fit? Have you ever felt like you don't fit? And sometimes even in church, you feel like I don't fit, right? I get that. But what we want to say to you this morning is this, that you are always invited into God's family. And we're doing the best that we can here to create space for you so that you feel like you are welcome and you are a part. Where do you fit? At God's table, there's always an open seat for you. And you're invited in. And I hope that's always true here. What difference do I make? Here's the crazy thing about how God works. You and I are the people God is using to bring about his kingdom on earth. I know. I think it's a bad plan, but God didn't ask me what I thought. I thought, hey, like, have you met people? We're not that great. Like, we pretty much stink at some of this stuff, so maybe you should just do it. And he's like, yeah, but I love you. I want you to be so shaped, so changed, so molded that you bring God about heaven on earth. It's literally his prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not when I blow this thing up, but right here, right now. That's the message of Jesus. What does he, he come preaching? Repent. Why? Because the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is here. What's our purpose? We're to live as God's kingdom citizens here and now. So what might happen? What would happen to young Steve's in the world today? If there were churches who invited them in, what might happen to Steve's in the world today if we first connected, then corrected? What might happen if we had empathy for what people are going through today? What might happen? What might happen if we listened first? What might happen if people who call themselves followers of Jesus were so committed to loving God and loving others that it shaped their entire lives? What might that look like? That 
might just be something worth giving our lives to. That might just be life-changing. That might just help us when we wrestle with who we are and what our identity is and what our purpose is and what our calling is. That just might happen. And then in our days when we're struggling and we're uncertain and we're unsure, then we reminded the words of Jesus, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Maybe, just maybe, that God is calling you and I to be his unique people in such a way that the world might be radically changed through the way we love one another and we love our neighbor as ourself. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to gather together this morning. For the way you love us, the way you invite us to draw near to you, for the way you change and shape us to become your image in the world. So, Father, we ask this morning that you might help us to be your unique people. That empathy might define our lives in such a way that we come to know you in ways that are life-giving. That we come to know in the midst of chaos all around us that you desire for us to be people who find rest in the midst of stress and difficulty. And we ask, Father, that we might look more and more like your son, Jesus. And it might help us make sense of the world. So, Father, we confess today all the ways that we maybe don't look like your son. We confess the ways that we have... Use conversation stoppers instead of conversation inviters to push people away. We confess the moments where we've acted like we had the right answer when really we just didn't know. We confess all these things, Lord, and we ask that you might help us to become your unique people, so radically defined by your faith and your hope and your love, that we might actually change the world in which we live. And so, Father, we pray all these things in your Son Jesus' name.